Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. Speaking of interviews, John and Maria Jose Tenuto were on the show last week to talk Space Seed, and they are extremely knowledgeable people, and we ended up raging far and wide in our discussion about Space Seed, and sometimes off the topic of Space Seed, so I collected some of the extra bits, or choice outtakes, if you will, from that interview, and I present them now for your perusal. Uh, as far as the news for this week goes, don't worry about it, nothing much happening on that end. I don't know, just Star Trek Discovery was nominated for five Saturn Awards, and human strongly worded letter to the management, Jason Isaacs, won the Best Actor in a TV Series Empire Award, beating out the likes of Alexander Skarsgård, Kyle MacLachlan, and Matt Smith, and it won't make him happy, because only finger-painting in the blood of his enemies can make him happy, but at least he's getting the recognition he deserves, as is Star Trek Discovery. We'll be back with more news from the world of Trek next week, but until then, enjoy the deleted scenes from my interview with the Tenudos and stick around until the end for a few announcements. And with that, let's get underway. First up, I asked the Tenudos about what people thought about Ricardo Montalban early in his career, and John told me about how Khan went from a Viking Superman to the Sikh tyrant we all know and admire. That's interesting. I'm trying to think of where Montalban was kind of in the public consciousness at this point in the uh, mid to late 60s. I know that he had been, he, wasn't he on the cover of Life magazine at some point in the 50s? Yes. In, yeah, in, the, in 1947, I believe it was, he oh, was okay. on the, he was the, yeah, he was the first Hispanic ever on the cover of, um, of Life magazine. He, you know, uh, was one he of doing the, Jamaica well, he, well, he did Jamaica in the 50s. So he was doing plays and, mm-hmm. um, and TV roles, and and that's uh, Joe D'Agusta thought of him because he was known as like a really dependable guest star. Okay. And and I think uh, from when we were looking at the memos, one of the things that we found when we asked, because really what we were fortunate in that we were able uh, Paramount let us um, uh, actually take a look at the documents at, at home, which was nice to be able to lay out the documents, copies of the <laughs> nice. documents at home, sure. because we would have never found this had we been stuck in the library or, or in an archive somewhere, just looking at it. It was really living with the stuff for a long time and putting, literally putting different sheets of paper next to each other. And one of the things that we discovered was that the, you know, it really, the name Khan isn't added until much later. The original name for the character was Harold Erickson right. in, Wilbur had a um, a August 29th, 1966 uh, outline uh, for Space Seed, and he names him Harold Erickson. And then in his, one of his rewrites, he names him John Erickson. There's also a John Harrison right. uh, in one of the rewrites. And uh, eventually the name, when, when Kuhn comes to the script, um, he has a certain conception of how he wants this character. There's a memo that Kuhn writes um, two very important memos that Kuhn writes to Wilbur uh, on September 7th and then September 9th, 1966. So Star Trek literally is just premiering. Uh, And um, Kuhn is writing this letter and he, one of the things he cautions Wilbur about is costs, you know, right. 
and and because they're supposed to be this big keel hauling sequence where <laughs> Kirk is 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 off the ship in a in, in a in a space suit and all of that. And he cautions us about cost, but he he's, he has a whole discussion in the memo about the character of Erickson and how this character could really define who Kirk is, and it really could become an important nemesis for Kirk, which is, is something that they hadn't had in any of the um, proposals or scripts that, that had already been submitted or being worked on. And that's why I always, you know, he's, he's the Joker, you know, and right. he, he wants Wilbur to make him a giant of a man because in the original um, conceptualization, he's, he's really just a, an everyday kind of criminal. Sure. And when Wil- Wilbur comes back in October and he comes back with his script on October 26th, he's beefed up Erickson a little bit. He's now like, a criminal who controlled a portion of the world and he's called the king and stuff like that. But Kuhn still isn't really satisfied. So Kuhn, Kuhn then tries to handle the script himself and he changes the character to be Ragnar Thorwald, which is a great name, although Kirk would have had trouble shouting that in Wrath of Khan because it would have been called, <laughs> called the Wrath of Ragnar Thorwald. But uh, Ragnar Thorwald it just doesn't have the same Meaning, but uh, but at that at this point he's the first world tyranny leader, mm-hmm. um, and he's and 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 you get a little closer to Khan, so that's the version that the Augusta's casting. He's actually casting Ragnar Thorwald, who is a Viking Aryan person. Right. And we we asked him what would make anyone think of Ricardo Montalban because he doesn't he certainly is physically as Mary Jo said he's physically impressive and very charming but why would you think of him as sort of an Aryan Viking blonde hair you know Nordic <laughs> type of guy you know as a Thor basically you know his name is Thor right and um, he he had said that you know. Uh, the biggest and, – and we saw this in memos too as well. The biggest challenge they had in that episode was the character of Marla. Mm-hmm. And Marla just seemed kind of weak and pathetic because she was supposed to be this you know, trained Starfleet officer who basically just gets swept off her feet, decides she's going to go and commit mutiny with Khan, then changes her mind. And they just – they had a trouble with how do you do that and make her believable as a Starfleet person who's trained at the same academy as Kirk and Uhura and Spock and everyone else. And um, they realized that the only way they could make that work was to have Thorwald be incredibly irresistible. Mm-hmm. And that's where they latched on to the idea of Ricardo Montalban. Sure. And that was all jo- that was all Joe D'Augusta. And he puts that name forward. Um, and Montalban, Mont, they just call him. He never has to test for the role. Sure. Um, D'Augusta has a great, tells us a great story. He told us that. So they call Ricardo Montalban and they say, you know, would you like to do the role? And he says, of course. You know, he, he had worked um, on Gene Roddenberry's very first Star Trek, I'm, I'm sorry, very first science fiction script back in the 50s. Right. Uh, uh, Roddenberry had written something called uh, the, the Secret Defense of one one five or something like that. Seven, yeah, one seven, yeah, and um, and he had worked in that, and so uh, he was very thrilled to work with Roddenberry again as a writer and um, uh, and work on Star Trek, and he and so Joe D'Augusta said, well, we'll come on in, no testing, but we want to st- we have to start working on the costumes because they were really running late because mm. they had so many problems with the script. In fact, the final version of the script wasn't done until. Uh, about three or four days before filming begins. Sure. And so, but they have to start working on costumes and all of that. So that he asked him what 
size he wore. And when Montalban told him his size, he, he thought he had heard wrong because he, he couldn't believe that his chest was that big. Uh, and, and he said, no, that, you know, that is my size. And he, and so, um, uh, Roddenberry was thrilled with that, but Roddenberry really is the one who wrote this script that we, we see. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't know that he, he rewrote a lot of scripts, but he really rewrote, um, this script and he's the one who turned him into Khan. Right. Um, and that was because of Montalban's casting. So, uh, they wanted to go at least a little closer to the way, um, uh, that, uh, Montalban appeared, uh, physically, Although, of course, they didn't go ethnically consistent because he would have either had to have been Spanish or Mexican. But right. they, they, they sort of went with what they thought they could get away with, and which is why they turned him into Khan. And in fact, our favorite note pages is, has handwritten notes by uh, Roddenberry um, and, and all over it. And, you'll, and you see every name of the character on that page. Because he's literally writing like handwritten notes as to rewrite this script. And so you see Ragnar Thorwald with Khan, with Khan spelled a different way, with, uh, you know, Erickson, Harold Erickson and John Erickson, all on the same page. Right. Uh, but it was, it was, Ma, it was uh, Roddenberry who came up with the genetic idea to make him a genetic Superman. And uh, he was really the one who made that script workable. Next up, John and Mary Jo tell us a little more about Ricardo as a person and relate some anecdotes from his life. Yeah, he we we had a chance to talk with uh, Robert Rodriguez, who play who uh, directed the Spy Kids films. Yeah, um, because we actually we have we do a talk um, about an hour and a half uh, lecture all about the life of Ricardo Montalban because b- way beyond Star Trek, he is just an amazing human being. Uh, uh, in, in fact, we have the permission of his family, which we're really grateful for that we can share his uh, autobiography free with our students because we, we, our books are always free to our students because we, the, the tuition is expensive enough for, for these poor kids. <laughs> That's so great. Um, we like all our books to be free. And they, they said that, that they had given us permission. So we were really, really thrilled with that. And the, so we get to share his biography that he wrote in 1980 uh, with our students today. And we really try to let them know that if you're looking for a role model, um, Ricardo Montalban is just, you, you really can't do better than him. Um, just as a person, as a husband married for 60 years to his wife, sure. to, to how he dealt with and looked at his disability, to how he, um, dealt with discrimination and prejudice ba- through love, through love and, and forgiveness and understanding and not through hatred and vitriol. And I, I wonder what he would think of the world of Twitter and Facebook and, <laughs> and the animosities that exist in our culture today. And he really Shady. was, a, yeah, he was a, he, he was a class, classful person. And, um, as far as social media goes, I think that he would probably appreciate and enjoy the uh, chance to connect with his fans. I've heard many, many stories of people, of uh, fans meeting him over the years, and they're all good stories. There isn't a bad story I've ever heard. No, that's the, 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 uh, I, that, that was, uh, one of the writers of, a, of, um, might've been a Saturday Night Live or something like that. One of the, the, um, kind of a skit TV shows, they were going to have him on there. And he had wrote, wrote a piece after Montalban died. And he was saying that not, a, he had never heard a single bad story or bad interaction between a person and Montalban. <laughs> and, and, and it was, and every single person we've talked to about Montalban or interviewed says the same exact thing sure. about how incredible is uh, basically the same thing people say about DeForest Kelly, what, a, what an incredible person that he was. And, um, and so Montalban, yeah, he was just, uh, 
he was so great and he and it would have been wonderful to have him reprise his role again in this next part i talk about what i see as one of the big differences between star trek and star wars and john talks about how continuity wasn't exactly on the minds of the creators of our earliest obsessions and we all talk about the dark times and how things like playing role-playing games got us through them There's no Sulu in this episode and no Chekhov either, which we all know is a little problematic for Wrath of Khan. It would lead to later writers trying to rectify that mistake in later works. Um, It's funny. This is emblematic to me, and maybe you have an opinion on this as a pop culture expert. It's emblematic of the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars, both in terms of fandom and and production. Um, René Arbogenois, the actor behind Odo on DS9, plays a Starfleet officer in a scene in the director's cut, I think, of Star Trek VI. And Trek, being in its inception a TV show that's produced on a weekly basis, I think the production office has a very practical way of looking at things. If there's an actor they like working with, they say, let's bring that person back. It doesn't matter if they were in a previous series or episode. Now they're going to play a different species or they're playing a different character um, similar to the one they played before. Like in the case of Robert Duck and McNeil, just bring that guy back. Um, and they don't worry about it. Meanwhile, in Star Wars, every single character that's in Every single frame has a volume of extended universe content written about them. You know, the bartender in the cantina has a book about him. And, and every alien in there, even the Wolfman mask that the prop department grabbed out of the costume shop and they, they shoved it in there because the place looked a little empty. They probably all have backstories that all intersect with Han, Luke, and Leia, and Chewie at some point. If Star Trek was Star Wars, we'd have a five-book series that explains how Odo was going through the wormhole and it got hit with antiprotons and he got sent back to the 23rd century and now he has to impersonate a Starfleet officer and he was able to get the nose right but he needed to have a mustache to make it work and so on and so forth and I think that Trek a lot of times at least on a production side just doesn't care about that no a lot of that has to do I think part of it has to do with when when these things were created I mean they're they're you know Star Trek was still in that world where um continuity didn't matter. It didn't matter to kids in comic books. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, I, when I read, even in the seventies, but when I read a lot of sixties comic books when I was a kid, um, you know, Superman one week, you know, uh, the kryptonite made him do this and another week it made him do that. I mean, it, right. it, it, it didn't matter. Um, and I think part of that is Star Trek kind of coming into the world during that kind of mentality when there is no, way to watch something again, except perhaps on a rerun and star Wars comes into the world when we we do have, you know, beta maxes and, um, you know, the ability to rewatch things is more, much more, much more common. And so continuity always is a little bit more of, um, I think in the mindset of, uh, uh, the world of star Wars. I also think too, the Star Trek never had what Star Star Wars has had that period of time called the dark years, you know, the, the dark times, mm-hmm. uh, which was about 1986 until Timothy Zahn's books came out in the 90s, um, where there was nothing, yeah. I mean, literally nothing except the West End games. Um, you could not go into a store as if Star Wars didn't exist. There wasn't a toy. There wasn't a book. Uh, there was nothing. And so... Um, when West End Games came out and they produced their source book and in there they made, you know, they took what the character I knew as Hammerhead all of a sudden had a real species and a, and a, and a, and a history. Right. Uh, and he wasn't called a Hammerhead, but accepted as a nickname um, or Walrus Man or, you know, whatever it happened to be. <laughs> um, that really, I think, 
uh, helped uh, reformat what it meant to be a Star Wars fan and what that universe was, where Star Trek never really went away. Uh, it was syndicated immediately. It was syndicated within uh, within two months of its last episode. It was syndicated right. and was playing on local stations. Um, so there was no um, there was no uh, sort of downtime for Star Trek in a way. Sure. I have a lot of good memories of the Star Wars West End games. A lot of uh, failed Jedis and brash pilots flying around the galaxy. Good times. <laughs> They're great. Yeah, those were great. Here's a moment where we discuss the development of the script of Space Seed from page to screen and how the characters and Spock in particular went through a lot of changes, like him having the Force. And we talk about how even at the beginning, the show's writers had plans for the characters that weren't Kirk or Spock. We were talking before about um, the way that this script sort of um, came to be and sort of coalesced. And what I always find fascinating is that, you know, in this this first season, these early days of Trek, a lot of these writers uh, like Carrie Wilbur are submitting outlines based purely on the show Bible. The show isn't on like when they're writing these things. So they don't know what Kirk acts like or what Spock does. And they have to go completely by uh, what they're given in terms of like reference documents. And that caused a, a few changes from the original outline to um, what ended up being on the screen. Yeah, the character of Spock is really, uh, is really different in Wilbur's outline. Um, the episode opens with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy playing chess, and Spock is cheating. <laughs> He's connecting his moves to the computer, and it's McCoy who discovers this, and Spock then is embarrassed. So um, that's a real difference, to have Spock cheating and to have him experience embarrassment. And then uh, later, when... It's suspected that Erickson is more than what he lets on. Uh, Spock suggests using some of his peculiar methods of the mind to get him to talk. <laughs> That's kind of sort of like what he does in Star Trek Six. Yeah. But, oh, okay. But Kirk says Kirk won't let him because it's illegal. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. And then um, then another thing that's different with Spock, it's almost like he has the force. Um, because when, when Kirk <laughs> is going to be, yeah. Well, when Kirk is going to be keelhauled, um, Spock would have felt that Kirk was still alive. Like he would have felt some kind of psychic or spiritual connection. Interesting. Yeah, it's it, yeah, and, and, you know, and we do have to forgive Wilbur because he's he's writing this in August, and you know he's got, I, you know, the, the show is still in flux. Um, Rand isn't in the script, right? Either uh, initial, I mean, Rand is in the script, right? And it has to be right. Her main function is to tease Marla about, uh, you know, her interest in one of the frozen sleepers, hmm. but um, but Grace Lee, she's off yeah. the air. Yeah, she's not on the show. So what they what did is they, they did keep that and they rewrote it and uh, they filmed it, but it was edited out of the episode. Um, Joe D'Augusta's wife, who had played in a couple of episodes of the show, uh, was going to play that role again. Oh, uh, and did. Barbara Baldavin. Yeah. And she was going to play the same character. Um, and they were just sort of substituted, you know, Rand, Rand's character for that character. Okay. But uh, Okay. So, I mean, there there was there were a, a, adjustments that needed to be made as they were filming, uh, because of the show being in flux, and and of course changes needed to be made. It, I mean, in fact, it was um, Kuhn who he writes a memo in September, early September, um, where he that's the, the memo, the September second memo, where he calls it the best uh, proposal that they got. But he 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 wants some changes. He 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 says, please no chess. 
um, <laughs> because they had already had a bunch of scripts. And although Wilbur wasn't aware of that, um, he said too much chess. Uh, and I was worried about that. And also, um, in Wilbur's script, he actually, the, the date was specified of when Star Trek occurred. Sure. It was going to be 500 years into the future from, from the sit from the nineties. Sure. So they said no, no dates. And, uh, also Marla was originally Uhura's character, at least in terms of role, there, there was still Uhura, sure. but she was going to be the communications officer. And, and, uh, Kuhn said, one. yeah, this a second communications officer. And Kuhn said, no, we already have a, a main character who fulfills that function. She needs to come up be something else. And that's where they came up with the idea of her being a history uh, buff and a history uh, officer. That's interesting because I know that um, Nichelle Nichols herself has said that she thought about quitting after the first season because she felt like she just wasn't being used well. There wasn't really a lot going on for Uhura. So it's fascinating to see that somebody like Gene Kuhn even back then was like, no, no, we, we, we know what we want. You know, we've got plans for these characters and we want these people around. Absolutely. And that they and that they saw that as a main, you know, that there's always that idea. And it's true. It's it's 60s TV. So there there is a lead actor, yeah. a single lead actor. And because of Spock's popularity, we then wind up with two lead actors. Sure. Right. And then because of McCoy being involved in that, you get sort of three eventually. But the show is conceived as a single lead with with these side uh, ancillary characters and and really I don't I think that they 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 knew that when they were writing that you know William Shatner was the star and all of that but uh, they also realized the importance of of characters like Uhura and 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 just symbolically uh, what the characters represented but also the fact that they were just they were good actors and you, you the the concept of surrounding your here your your three heroes with the same family every week was that that was important to the show. Next up we talk about the relationship between Khan and Marla and how it would probably not fly today on TV. Plus I drag out my sexy Kirk myth again and get it validated by a scholar. Thank you very much. And we also talk about sociological disassociation, Superman slapping ladies, and the liberating aspects of miniskirts. It's fun. I think the relationship between Khan and Marla is, I mean, it's troubling to modern viewers. Um, you mentioned that them they've really struggled with trying to make it work and believable. And I think they could have pulled it off if we, it's an hour long TV show. We don't have all the time in the world, but if we knew a little more about Marla as a character and saw how her fell, falling under his spell was down to that pre-existing fascination, uh, as you mentioned with, with powerful figures. And we don't even get the scene that that you also mentioned um was she's talking to Uhura or Rand or whoever and she's like I need a real man to drag me to his cave or, or whatever you know we don't, we don't even get that Khan is really he, he's also when he interacts with her he's using like the seducer's playbook right from Jump Street like the first thing he does is neg her hair so mm -hmm. he tells her you gotta wear your hair different and this is all right from the game like you have to wonder if there's another ship out there with a frozen Tucker Max waiting to be loosed on the galaxy <laughs> But uh -huh. I do like the scene where we find um, he finds her sketch of him. I thought that that was a really nice kind of semi-subtle way to show that he's having an influence on her. And it's not all the Vaseline lens medium shots of her just going, Aruga. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a rough, you know, it is. I mean, it's uh, we, we had actually, um, oh, I, I don't even remember when, about six, seven years ago or so, a library had asked us, they were going to be showing uh, both Space Seed and Wrath of Khan, and they had asked us to come and, and talk around those episodes. And when we, we so it's very fascinating to watch Space Seed with a modern audience and mm -hmm. the reaction of people 
to the scene when he really abuses her, physically abuses her. Mm. Um, and throughout the whole episode, it both love, lo- you know, loves her, then, you know, sort of taunts her and loves her and, you know, uh, uh, you know, threatens her. I mean, there's this sort of very uh, 60s kind of, you know, pre pre-modern era point of view on that. I think if the episode did a little more to sort of condemn that, because I think the wires get crossed between, I mean, he's not a good guy, like he is a bad guy, and all, but also just the sort of 60s sexual politics, and it doesn't quite separate those two layers enough uh, for me. No, and I think that that's just, it's part of what, you know, it's, it's one of the things we I, I tell my students all the time when, it's not just when you study popular culture, um, it's also when you study culture itself. And so it, we cannot put, well, I mean, we can personally, but I'm talking from a sociological or, or analytical point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't go back and put today's values on the past. Um, even 20 years ago, gender relationships were very different. Yeah. And, and so by us taking uh, our attitudes today and trying to put them back into the past, um, that's good in the sense it can inform today and say, boy, how can we be better today? You know, and look at how, look at how, look what we were yeah. and look, look, how, look how we can be better today. But I, but there's a problem if we start condemning necessarily people in the past because that was what they knew. So I, the, the example I always give of that is, um, when a lot of times when we give a talk about Star Trek, we talk about, you know, the history of it and really how amazingly forward thinking it was, uh, both in terms of race and, technology and just, I mean, just so many different areas. And, you know, we give all the, the, the information everybody knows about, you know, the, the cell phone connection with Star Trek and the first interracial kiss and all these really important sort of firsts that Star Trek did. And even some ones that are maybe a little more subtle, but still very, very important, like having Sulu on the bridge, I think is very important at a time when we're, you know, uh, having the beginnings of conflicts that are going to, you know, Vietnam. Right. And, and we have the cold war going on and we have a Russian. I mean, there's just, there's, there's a lot of great stuff in Star Trek about how we can be better people, but one, we'll always have somebody say something like, yeah, but it was very sexist. And, um, you know, uh, for example, look at the skirts. Well, but the problem with that is the skirts were something that the, the many of the female actresses wanted to wear because in the sixties, the idea of short skirts and mini skirts, that that was empowerment because prior to that, it was the Victorian era dress from head to toe. And that's why in the sixties and seventies, you see hot pants and, you know, everyone wearing it from Jackie Onassis, Mary Tyler Moore, everyone. And the idea of sort of showing a, a woman having her, her own power to determine how much, of herself she was going to show, whether it was a lot or a little, would be her choice and not the society's choice. And 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 so that actually was a liberation idea in Star Trek, the short skirts on the on, on the female characters. But when or any of William Werethys's outfits, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're very, we're very much designed to be part of that sort of liberation movement that was just beginning um, during that period of time. Now, when we look at that today, we go, oh, tisk, 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 and look at that, we're sexualizing people. But that's because we're looking at it with today's eyes. And so um, Khan, is, Khan is a difficult character to, to look at and go, you know, 
in some ways he becomes he's probably more villainous to us today than he was in the 60s because his interactions with her in the 60s at least from a tv point of view um i would have hoped nobody treated their partners that way back then in real life but 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 from a tv point of view to have a, a male character for example slap a female character wouldn't have been unheard of superman did that in the comic books you know um, the concept of a hysterical woman and you slap her, you know, that kind of thing. And so, uh, th- that whole dimension or that whole era, we look at it now, I think in some ways it makes Khan w- worse than he was originally written to be, Yeah, which is, which is good. Right. I mean, now we're looking at it going like, oh my gosh, that's just repulsive. But I don't know that they had the thought pattern in the sixties. And even if they did, I don't know that TV would have allowed that. And I don't want to get too far off track, but it it does remind me of something that we've talked about on this show before, which is Kirk does similar things with women as well. There's this phenomenon that I call the myth of the sexy Kirk, where everybody thinks that Kirk is this, you know, just romancing sort of Valentino that goes throughout the galaxy. And almost all of his interactions with women uh, on the show are manipulations of some kind. He is talking you know he is um complimenting miri so he can get more information about what happened to the people on the planet he is trying to seduce a woman so he can get the keys to get out of the jail or whatever wherever they are it's a very similar thing to what khan is doing here khan may or may not be attracted to marla but he needs her help to take over the ship and so khan is using physical force in a way that kirk never would but it's a very similar tactic that you would see on 60s genre tv i think yeah i think you know um I've always contended that Kirk is not at all the Lothario that he's ever made out to be. And that and that when you do meet any woman that he had an actual relationship with, whether it's Ruth or Carol, they like him. They still like him. Sure. And 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 he must have been a respectful, decent person. And what he tends to do is a situation may occur where he may not necessarily have a, you know, uh, he may not be brought kicking and screaming to this, but he, 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 he will use whatever he has to to save a ship, which is why I think Kirk and Khan are great mirrors to one another um, in many ways. And in fact, they they kind of say that within the episode that you know you, you there's a similarity between the two of them, an affinity between the two of them, and that was sort of the idea again of Kuhn that you got to make Khan should be what Kirk could have been. Um, if Kirk had been a different kind of a man. Sure. Uh, and, and so, and I think that that's what makes it, you know, a, an interesting um, uh, character. And again, to, to look at it from, I always think to look at it, we, we look at it now, that's that same phenomenon, right? We're looking at the 60s show, uh, 50 years ago, we're looking at it with, uh, with, with 50, uh, 50 years later eyes. And we see, and we just sort of people read Kirk, right away as a sort of Lothario character. And I, I don't think so. I think um, they kind of missed that in the J.J. Abrams films, at least the first two. <laughs> yeah. They made him yeah. too much of a Lothario. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and, and, and that's okay because he's a different Kirk, right? I mean, he's not, he's not the same person. He's have different circumstances. Sure. Um, so he can be different. But if the idea is that he, that's supposed to be representative of who Kirk was, even in our, you know, in the prime universe, that's, I do not think that's how he was really towards women. I would agree. And finally, I asked the Tunudos who their favorite captain was, and they asked me back, which led to a discussion about the nature of pop culture and how something made for a season can last for a century. And the Tunudos give us their opinions on Star Trek Discovery. 
Wait, how about yours? Do we have oh, to get yours? Well, the <laughs> listeners know mine. Uh, I would, uh, but for your own uh, edification, uh, I would probably say that it's Kirk, um, also because he was kind of my entry in. And I also think that I love, I both love and hate the. Um, the, the, you know, there's the 60s adventure hero. It, it's not quite the 50s, but we still don't think we can do any wrong. It's pre-Vietnam. And I know it's naive, but I still like that idea of we're going to go out there and we're going to get our jam hands all over the galaxy and somehow everything's going to turn out okay. And every captain after that, and I think for good reason and for good storytelling, has kind of been a reaction to that. So Picard has to be the anti-Kirk and that he's the he's very thoughtful and he doesn't do what he does. And Cisco has a very specific problem he has to deal with. And Janeway is the woman. And I love all those iterations uh, in pizza, chocolate, whatever the metaphor is. But there's something about that, you know, the the, the pure space adventurer who's going to go out there. He's going to be a little maybe too um, white male for his own good, but he's able to learn and he's able to change his ways and he's able to be affected by all these things. I mean, maybe it's too, I don't know, white man, white man's burdeny, but it still kind of resonates with me. I think the, um, you know, Star Trek, you know, any good, um, anything, you know, popular culture by its nature is generally meant to just be ingested and it's like popcorn, right? You just sure. pop it in your mouth. You don't, you don't think about right. it. You I mean, it's popular culture, right? So, I mean, that's the way a lot of sitcoms are and things like that. And they have an influence and a popularity for a time, and then they kind of fade away and, you know, that that sort of thing. The very few items that last like 50 and 60 years, the 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 Supermans and the, the you know, the Tarzans and the, the, you know, Sherlock Holmes and the things like that, Mickey Mouse, um, Star Trek, Star Wars – they 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 have to be reinvented yeah. for every generation. And I think the Star Trek's strongest suit is that it, if you look at the show, it very much at each show, it very much reflects the time in which it was created. And so, um, you know, Kirk is Kennedy and, uh, you know, Picard is George Bush, uh, the original George Bush, you know, you know, the new world order and, and having to be a diplomat and trying to draw consensus and, and get, you know, lots of people on board to go, to, to go do a, an idea. Um, I, I, I really think you could almost match, uh, you know, each, each captain to the president of the era, not because they're a reflection of the president, but because both Star Trek and who people elect are representative of the times in which they live in and, and, and what they think they need at that time sure. and the kind of per- leaders that they think they need at that time. And so I think Star Trek's really great for that kind of um, adaptation to the time. And I think it's doing it. It continues to do that, um, you know, with uh, with the J.J. films and with uh, with uh, the with Discovery. Well, now that you mentioned Star Trek Discovery, I have to ask, are you guys keeping up on Discovery and what do you think of it? Oh yeah, we love it. We've been watching. Yeah, we from really, the beginning. Yeah, we really like it. Um, uh, it's it's different. Um, it's it's uh, it's unusual not to have clearly defined characters so that we know. You know, you kind of know who Picard is right away. Right. Um, you know who Kirk is right away, and and Janeway, and you kind of you know. Of course, we learn more about them, and they they grow and things like that. But the, you know the heart of who they are, and it's it's very it's it's almost unsettling watching a Star Trek where you you don't you don't know who Lorca really is and <laughs> who who Michael will become. And but I think there's a lot of um, really great things. I, we we love the character of Stamets. Uh, because he is kind of the classic Star Trek hero. He he, you kind of know what he's about. Right. Um, he there's not 
there's not a lot of where you're like, oh, who is he? he? We know who he is. He's heroic. He's he's self-sacrificing. He's, you know, um, they have a few of those kinds of characters. We, we love Stamets, but it's, uh, you know, it's really interesting. Um, um, we we have a little theory, of course. We'll see if we're right, you know, like all fans. But I'm not sure we're in the Prime Universe yet. Okay. Um, I, I have a, a, a possibility that we're going to be going there soon. Um, which explains why certain things are the way that they are. Okay. Uh, and that we, you know, so we are going to be in the prime universe, but not this season. Sure. Um, I'm probably totally wrong about that, but, uh, but, uh, uh, but we, we really like it. One of the things we really like about it is how it's, if this is the prime universe, they're doing a good job of sort of, um, I think almost teaching us about characters like Spock without him being there. Which I think is great. Yeah. Uh, the episode Lethe did a really great job of, of helping us understand Sarek and Spock's relationship and why Sarek is so disappointed in his son, uh, really because he's disappointed in himself for making a choice between his two children and, in essence, choosing wrong. Right. Um, and so I th- that kind of writing is really, really great, I think. Um, uh, you know, I wish we, we kind of wish as parents it was a little less violent and uh, – <laughs> Uh, you know, um, but that's, I think, a product of the time uh, that we live in. And uh, the yeah, whole f- that's, it's on streaming. It's not on, you know. Regular network. Yeah. yeah it it uh, and I hope they'll kind of tone that down once they kind of get that out of their system. Sure. I, I hope that's sort of like Ooh, we can do this now. Right. Right. Um, you know, because I think it's sometimes it, it's not it's, it's necessary. Violence is great for a story if it makes a point. Um, you know, uh, Schindler's List, the violence there was absolutely necessary and important. Um, Braveheart, it was absolutely necessary and important. And I think, you know, you don't want to make war, for example, look like it's not a big deal, you know. Um, So violence definitely has a place, but we don't have to have it be gratuitous. And I, that's the only thing I worry a little bit about with the show, but you know, that's, I'm also old and, 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 a, <laughs> and a curmudgeon and, and they're not making the show for me, but I, but I, I really like it. I think it's a wonderful show. Everything from the, the acting is outstanding. Um, uh, you know, really just, uh, the subtlety of the acting is just brilliant. The, I love the mystery of it. Right. Um, <laughs> It's just strange. It's just strange not knowing the end point because you, yeah, we, we have you know it's been twelve years since we don't know the end point of a Star Trek show. You know yeah, now right. now, and and they're really not telling us the end point because we don't even know where the start point is. I don't think yeah. yet. So, um, it, really great. And 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 Captain Giorgio is just, we both love her. She is just our favorite. Uh, we, we hope that she's back somehow mm-hmm. again. Thanks for listening to this extra material from the Tenudos interview, and thanks to the Tenudos, I've got to have them back on to talk more Star Trek, and maybe specifically about Star Trek toys and models, if they're not sick of it yet. If you want more of the Tenudos, you can catch them on Netflix on The Toys That Made Us. Season 2 of that should be out any week now, and the Tenudos are in that as well. And if you want more of John's work, you can head over to Amazon and check out Social Movement Theory and Research, an Annotated Bibliographical Guide. By Roberto Gardner and John Tenuto. It is an academic work that John contributed to when he was a graduate student at DePaul University. It provides a review essay of social movement theory from the end of World War II to the mid-1990s. And let's see, what's the price here? Oh, you can get one new for $10,000. 
$10,000. The price seems right on that. And if you want to pick it up, you can get to Amazon by clicking through our Amazon banner on enterprisingindividuals.com. And you should know how this works, but here's a refresher. When you click on that banner to buy a $10,000 work of research, we get a little bit of that $10,000. And, uh, you know, the, the slices are thin, but at $10,000, I mean, that's going to be a somewhat substantial slice. That's going to be a good sandwich. So I'm not saying that you're going to buy this book. I mean, if you want to, go for it. But anything that you buy on Amazon does help keep the Warp Core lit back home here at the old Enterprising Individuals show. So click through our Amazon banner if you're going to shop for something. And heck, you can even bookmark that banner. You click through, and once you get to Amazon, bookmark the page that you're on there. So when you shop on Amazon, a little portion of your purchases comes back to us at no extra cost to you. Well, if $10,000 is too rich for your blood, how about $1? For that single unit of currency, you can become a member of the show and join our crew, just like Lieutenant Junior Grade Andrew Troth, who recently became a Patreon at the $5 level. Thanks for your support, Andrew. Crew members get access to exclusive content like behind-the-scenes show updates, access to our live event episodes like our upcoming talk at Convergence 2018 with Melinda Snodgrass about her episode The Measure of a Man, and my DS9 rewatch commentaries, which... I promise there are more on the way. I've, I've been in the lab recording a lot of new episodes and interviews of this show, but also new DS9 commentaries. So come along and join me as I take a trip through the wormhole to cover every episode of DS9. And you can hear all of that when you join the show at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. Make it show. I wanted to mention just before we go that enterprising individuals will be represented by me myself next weekend at Minicon in the Twin Cities. Minicon takes place from March 30th through April 1st at the St. Louis Park Doubletree just outside of Minneapolis. It's a great show with lots of great panels and discussion about sci-fi and speculative fiction and some great guests. And they've made the mistake of letting me in the door. So that's where I'll be talking Trek and more. You can find out more about Minicon at MNSTF dot org forward slash minicon and remember listeners you can tweet to us or message the show and get updates about what we're up to at minicon and elsewhere just go to facebook.com forward slash eist pod or find us at at eist pod on twitter or through our social media links on enterprisingindividuals.com. You can also reach the show at eistpod at gmail.com with feedback and suggestions or to just say hello we're waiting to receive your transmission and that's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. If you're an Apple Podcast listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on Apple Podcasts and make sure that you're subscribed to the show. Also, write us a little review if the spirit moves you and give us a rating at the very least. It really helps. We'd appreciate it. If you're not an Apple Podcasts user, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and ratings and reviews on those platforms as well, we'd be eternally grateful. Next time on Enterprising Individuals. To know him is truly to love him. He's our favorite Soong-type android, but since he met that old sexist guy, he started to act a little weird? Guest Emeritus and New York Times best-selling author David Mack returns to the show next week to talk a Next Generation episode that proves that, as good as TNG got, he began life as a show struggling to define its identity. It's the schizoid man next time on Enterprising Individuals. And until then, I'm your Captain Caliban signing off and saying, live long and prosper. Yeah.